Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, of thy Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the name of Jesus. Greetings. God has been very good to us, uh, has He not? Today on this third week of Advent, let us be thankful for peace here at Foundation Church, for unity among the people of God as we gather here today. Isn't it a wonderful thing to like the people that you gather with and to be at peace with them? Amen. It's easy to take for granted the good things we have until something painful and ugly rears its head and takes away our peace. That's what David is reveling in here in our call to worship from Psalm 133. There was a very long and painful season of strife and division in Israel after David was anointed king the first time and it was a years of pain and division in the nation but David wrote Psalm 133 when it had come to an end this short psalm was a call to what I call a savory psalm everybody say a savory psalm psalm. Now, now we don't have the music here before us but you can almost sort of smell the savor in the words of David. I'm going to read it the way that I think that he meant it. It's a very short psalm. Behold. Because I think it was a long pause. I think David was like, behold. Like, imagine, kind of like, at last. Like, here we are, we've gathered together, and behold. How good. And how pleasant it is for brethren. And I can almost see the choir director as they were singing this or whatever they were, however they were doing it, looking around at the people that were gathered. For brethren, for brothers and sisters to gather together in unity. And imagine when he said those words, Steve, you know, there was so, there was so many years of non-unity, so much division, so much pain. That when he gets to the point of behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He probably did a big stop and looked at everyone and looked around because their swords weren't drawn and there wasn't blood on the floor. There were 
people were gathered together and they were excited for what God was going to do. And as we get to verse 2 in this very short psalm, I can imagine the first three words are, it is like. I can imagine them having a stop there too, Andy. It is like. Have you ever heard someone trying to describe something so good that they have to stop to just think about it? It's, it's like. It's like. And he's thinking about what could be as good as what is going on right now. What is this unity? What is it? What is as good as? It is like. It's like the precious ointment upon the head. And he probably thought about what it was like, how many people would greet travelers and people that uh, would, would visit that had been on the dusty road. Remember Christ saying, I came to visit you and no one anointed me. Remember this? It was a tradition. You know, you, you, you got off the oil and, and they refreshed themselves. They were like, oh, this feels better. It's like putting on lotion on dry hands. It's like, it's like precious ointment upon the head. And then I can imagine he's thinking like, but not just anybody's head. This is even more precious than just greeting oil. Upon the head that ran down upon the beard. Whose beard? I mean, anybody. I mean, it's great when you get a lot of oil, right? But how about on Aaron's beard? Because Aaron represented, he was the priest. He was the high priest. He was the the man that represented uh, God and and was is there before the people taking the the sins of Israel into the holy of holies. It's like precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. Lots and lots of oil. And then he stopped because he's like, you know, that's good, but can, what can I think of that's even better or Maybe to add to this beauty, he said, it's like the dew of Hermon. As the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Unity is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we realize it most of all when we don't have it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that comes because joy is what we've gathered together to remember how that there were times of joy as Israel waited for the coming of Messiah. And we know that the joy that comes, this great joy that comes from the wells of salvation, this joy, it comes from peace and unity and People dwelling together in love and fellowship. And that is what your law is for. Your law helps men to dwell together peacefully. To show their kindness and their love and their importance to one another, Lord God. And the joy that it brings. The sweetness of it, Lord. Not just the laughter and the myrrh, but the joy. The deep abiding well. The satisfying balm of joy. Lord, may we gather together as the people of God each week, joyful that our sins are forgiven. Joyful that we will not leave this place the same as we came, but that you will fill us as we hunger and thirst with food from heaven. And change us, Lord, that we might be like you. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen.
Today, my sermon for you today is entitled, David, Joy in Israel. My text for you is from the book of First Chronicles, chapter 12. This story is told for us in the books of First Chronicles and Second Samuel. But we're going to be, we'll be in both of them, but we're going to start in First Chronicles, chapter 12. First Chronicles, chapter 12, starting in verse 38 said, And all these men of war that could keep rank came with a perfect heart to Hebron to make David king over all of Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one heart to make David king. And there they were with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Moreover, they that were near them, even to Issachar and Zebulon and Naphtali, brought bread on donkeys and camels and mules and oxen and meat and meal and cakes and figs and bunches of raisins and wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly. For there was joy in Israel. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, let there be joy today in your people Israel today. For we are that people Lord, we are the people who are called by your name, and joy is a gift that you have given us. Lord, the world waited year after year, millennium after millennium, Lord, waited for the coming of the child who would be the man who would strike down the enemies of God. And that man came and brought joy into the world like nothing else could. May this joy be a joy that fills our souls today. In Christ's name we pray and all the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a day this must have been in Israel. A glorious day. Indeed, a day of joy. I was... For some reason, I have never really listened to a lot of R.C. Sproul Sr. And... um, they have this thing on Ligonier where he tells stories and he, he's teaching, but it really just sounds like he's telling stories. And he talked about this day. I remember a few weeks ago listening to a message on his, and he said, do you remember when Princess Diana married Prince Charles? The whole world kind of flipped out. And millions and hundreds of millions of people watched it, and there were pomp and circumstance and parade and... And he talked about how that when we haven't lived through this, but when men come home from war, from World War One and World War Two, they're greeted in the city with the ticker tape parade, and they put a man on a car. And the do you, have you guys ever seen that? You've seen pictures of this, and and they're received at this great joyous time. Well, this was a day like that in Israel. It was huge, and it was building over time. The day was long coming for David and all of Israel. God had rejected Saul from being king and sent Samuel to anoint David in Bethlehem. You remember this. We talked about it. Remember how David was literally the last person anyone thought would be Israel's next king. He was the youngest of the children of Jesse. And here he was in this little tiny nowhere town of Bethlehem. Not even at home when the prophet came, but had to be sent for This strange anointing of God by the prophet was most certainly kept quiet. Saul seemed to have no idea 
that God had chosen David. He had this skilled heart playing shepherd come to drive the evil spirits from before him. Before asking Jesse to give him into the service of the king. Saul had no idea who David was. He had no idea that God had anointed him king. And so he invited him to come and serve the king at the royal household. By God's decree, David, as we learned last week, had also been Israel's unlikely champion when he killed Goliath of Gath and cut off his head. The women of Israel, if you remember, after that day sang a song and they sang that Saul had killed his thousands. Everybody say, Saul had killed his thousands. You see, that very day that David defeated Goliath, the Philistines did not just turn over themselves to the Israelites as been, had been the promise of the giant, but instead they took off running away from Israel in sheer terror. And when they did, Saul and the, the, the men of Israel grabbed their swords and put on their armor and chased after them, and they slaughtered thousands of Philistines. The army prevailed against Philistia and routed them. But this song that the women sang did not only sing about the thousands that Saul had killed that day, but there was a twisted chord in the ears of Saul when he heard that Saul had killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. This displeased the descending king greatly. It would be the beginning of a time of great turmoil and division and darkness in Israel that would last for years. Isn't it amazing how wonderful things can happen for people, but when better things happen to other people, how they lose their joy? Here, Israel had been delivered. Here, the shame and reproach had been taken away by this this young man that God had sent to be a champion. What a joyous day it was. And Saul had seen the blood of his enemies poured out on the ground. And, And now Saul was reveling in this great victory and was excited. But his joy was taken away because somebody was praised higher than him. Does it ever bother you when people brag on other people? When people are better at something than you are? Anybody ever get jealous? You know, I've seen jealousy here in this church among children. It's an ugly thing. If we remember Saul's own son, Jonathan, when he saw what David had done and he saw how David had risked his life to lay down his life for all of Israel and how David had triumphed with God. Do you guys remember what happens? It says that Jonathan's heart was knit with the heart of David and he loved him with a deep and abiding love that even surpasses the love of a man for a woman. What in the world does that even mean? He looked at, he looked at David and he said, that's the kind of man I want to be. He loved him. Not only did that happen to Saul's son, Jonathan, but Saul had a daughter named Michael. And he had promised that daughter to be married to the one who would vanquish the giant. And the Bible tells us that Michael loved David and displeased King Saul. But what's so sad, Brother Tim, is it didn't please King Saul because he loved David. 
It pleased him because it gave him the opportunity to hurt David. Jealousy is cruel, the Bible tells us. It is cruel as the grave. Now, this doesn't sound very joyful, does it, on a joyful day? (laughs) But you see, sometimes the greatest joys come after the most horrible things. And that's what this day was. And there will be days in our church that are dark days. We have had some dark days in our history. We've been around for a little bit and we've had some very dark days. If you remember Saul says, oh yeah, David, you can have my daughter. That'll be great. But you need to go out and you need to get the foreskins of a whole bunch of Philistines. You guys remember this? Because what did he expect? David would go out. He would think he was tough and strong. He probably had just gotten lucky when he killed the giant anyway. He won't be able to go get, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but I believe it's over a hundred. But what does David do? God is with him and he does kill the Philistines and he does bring the foreskins to Saul. And Saul does not let him have his daughter. Saul is eaten with jealousy. Saul seethed with this jealousy. Oh, what ungodliness flows from it. Beware of it when it twinges in your heart. It will steal all the joy that God has given you and replace it with hatred and discontentment. I've seen this. I've seen, I've seen God bless people with skills and with ability and, and maybe even with good looks or with good singing ability. And I've seen where people can't, they can't enjoy their life because somebody has got some more praise than they do. Somebody's got some more ability and more skill or more looks. You know, you don't, you don't make yourself as handsome as me. Only God can do that. You don't make someone with as manly a physique as me. I'm just kind of kidding around, guys. God does that. But what are we? When we say that we should have what others have, when we should have what others have, and we're not content with what we have, what we say is that God hasn't given us what we deserve. We should be the best looking, the smartest, the best singing. We should be the most important. We should be the one everybody listens to. Folks, I'm telling you, that's jealousy. And here's Saul. He could have rejoiced. He could have said, isn't it amazing we have a man like David? That God can use? Isn't it amazing what God will do with people that, that are willing to be used? He could have celebrated, and, 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 but, he, but he didn't. It would be a rare student of biblical history who could truly recount the tumultuous time, this tumultuous time in Israel history. Andy, if they had asked us to describe this in our ordination exam, we would have both failed this, I can guarantee you. Because as I tried to untangle and I wanted to try to recount for you what happened between this time and the time David is anointed, it's unbelievable. It's an entire, you know, mini-series of movies and intricate stories and horrible things. Really. This tumultuous time in Israel's history, David would be anointed a total of three times over seven years before he would see the promise of God fulfilled in him. Saul chased him from his presence as he played for him, longing again and again to run him through with a spear. Fleeing from Saul, he resorted to the showbread for food so he wouldn't starve and the trophy sword of Goliath as his defense because he had no sword even In his hand, he had to run away so fast. 
from Saul who was wanting to kill him. David had a growing band of men. They called his mighty men, but they would be chased all over Israel like hunted animals, living in caves and fields with no place to safely lay his head. Honoring God's anointing and refusing to lay a hand upon King Saul, David, though, was not treated with such honor from Saul. He had no honor for God's holy oil. He sought the life of David more than he had ever sought for God. And before this time was over, Saul would consult a witch. David would leave Israel. He would go live with the Philistines who he had vanquished. And he would live in Ziklag with his mighty men and their families. God would have the Amalekites steal their wives and children from them and and burn the city which had been their only place of refuge. As you read the growing division of the nation of Israel, the darkness pours forth from Saul and David's character becomes a shining city on a hill. It is a sordid picture of how the children of the devil pursue those who walk in the light. It is a picture of ungodliness and how we know this lives in us, this spirit of jealousy, the spirit that looks at others and, and thinks, ooh, I want them gone. I wish they were out of my way. They think they're better than me. They're all of this. This is what was the spirit that infected Israel. We don't want it to infect our church. Amen. Amen. Murders, mayhem, slaughter, slander, betrayal, brutality. Saul and Jonathan eventually die in battle at the hands of the Philistines. The witch at Endor had told him this would be his fate. He could have heard it from God himself, but called up the familiar spirit of Samuel, violating the law in his evil, ungodly scheming. So Judah anoints David king, dividing Israel in half in the midst of all of this time. This is David's second anointing. Abner anoints Isbosheth, the son of Saul, king of the rest of Israel. And now there's a split in the nation. This is horrible. If you read about this, you can only imagine it. it's in 1 Chronicles and it's in 2 Samuel. It's a painful and horrible time. You would have, as you read this, you think, what could possibly be going on here? Twelve of David's men are killed by a pool while playing music. By the men of the house of Saul in a deceitful and and, and disgusting way. Saul's daughter, who had refused, uh, Saul had refused to give to David, is separated from her husband. Now she's married and he follows her weeping and crying. It's a horrible, horrible time in Israel. Abner kills Joab's kinsman running him through with a spear. And then Joab gets Abner and stabs him under his fifth rib. And then the men of David go to Isbosheth and they find him in his bed and they stab him through the fifth rib and kill him in his bed while he sleeps. And David is horrified. He said, am I supposed to be happy about this? David in all of this is is righteous in what he does it's amazing when Saul and Jonathan die he sings about the glories of God's man Saul 
What a mighty man Saul was, David sings. What a mighty man was Jonathan. He does his best to restore order by saying, please let it all stop. David laments the bloodletting. He fervently prays for peace. And through these bloody years of strife, David dreams and prays for unity to come again. In beloved Israel, he prays that the prince of peace would come. You see where jealousy rears its ugly head. There can be no peace. But it does come. You see, among men, some of us can be good enough to be compared to. Some of us can say, oh, I could preach better than that guy, or I'm smarter than this guy, or I'm taller than that guy, or I can whatever that guy. But we know that when Jesus comes, he brings peace because there's no comparison. Amen. David was great, but he was not the prince of peace. But God gives them a picture of this peace that could come here. Like God commanded Israel to make no league with the nations of Canaan, God shows us that there will never be peace until the true prince of peace comes. And that's what David, even though David had been anointed king, even though God had been with him in the killing of Goliath, even though God was with him and provided for him food and, and helped him retake the, the, the wives and children from the Amalekites, even though God did all of that, David could see that as long as man lives and rules and sin rules in his heart, there can be no, there can be no peace. And really, if there's no peace, what can there not be? There can be real no joy. But here though, for a moment of time, it was like God pushed the stop button for a moment. And all of Israel remembers this time. That's why they remember. They call it the city of David. That's why everyone talks about the throne of David. That's why David, 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 because this time that is getting ready to come in the life of Israel. Because for a moment, David is going to become the small p. The prince of peace. He brings together through his loving kindness, through his forgiveness. He, instead of hunting down like others would, others, when, when, someone, was, when someone gets made king in a nation, they would go and they would hunt down and kill all of the family of the other king so no one would rear their ugly head. But there's a beautiful story, the story of Mephibosheth. The little boy, the little prince who was dropped and, and something happened in his body. Maybe his back was broken and he was paralyzed. But David loves him and says, forever, because you are from the house of Saul, you will eat at my table. Forgiveness and love and honor and refusing to return evil for evil. This is what David did. This is what makes David such an amazing and incredible man. His anointing was by king. His anointing was by God. His victory, he understood, was by God. And he had a supernatural love and kindness and forgiveness and honor for God in his life. And it brought peace in Israel. Some of you might wonder why, and I hadn't thought about including this, but do you ever wonder why we have such peace with the Japanese? You guys ever wonder about that? I mean, we dropped two nuclear bombs on their country. We were, they were horrible enemies in, in war with us, but yet they're one of our closest friends. You guys know anything about that? You should look into that. There were some people who loved the Japanese people and who said, we will be friends with them. 
and there was forgiveness and they weren't punished for a lot of the crimes that they deserved to be punished for. But for years, there was no peace with Germany because we did the opposite with them. It's a long story. Peace comes through love and forgiveness and not giving to people what they deserve. You know, when people do you wrong, you know, Tim could do me wrong at my house and, and back his car into my car or, or, or whatever. Or I can, you know, I don't really want to come up with a crazy example. But, but there are things, we, we, if we caused people to have to pay for their sins that they sin against us and we make them pay in kind back, there'll be no peace with us. Husbands and wives, children, sometimes parents. I'm, I'm a dad. Sometimes I'm like, those kids of mine, they're going to pay. Why don't we just let God repay? Amen? And what David did is he repaid with kindness and love and forgiveness. As I'm, as I'm getting old, Andy, this is what I'm deciding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm really going to live like this. I'm going to love people and I'm going to forgive people. Even my, even my own kids, these terrible heathens right here that live with me, that I love. You know, it's easy to love the imaginary people that live somewhere else, but it's hard to love the people in your house. Amen? Not hard because they're any more unlovable than you are. Right? It's hard for them to love you. Hard for them to forgive you. But you know, if you can create a culture of forgiveness and love, there can be peace and joy in your home. Our home has been a lot more joyful since I learned that. Maybe your home can be joyful too. Here for a moment of time, for a few years, the son of peace rises in the house of David and spring returns to the land. It kind of reminded me, uh, Jeff, of that scene in Narnia, right? You remember this? When the witch is dead and Aslan runs through and flowers are just bursting and the grass is turning green and the sun is coming out. Oh, what a vision it was in the house of David when spring returned to Israel. This is one thing the seasons do for us. They show us the cycle of a world of sin from spring to winter and back to spring, from birth to death and back again, from darkness and hopelessness, from the cold of winter to the color of spring. David has here the hope of his anointing as king has led him to the faith to fight a giant. And he behaved himself as an honorable man and waited for the fruit that God had promised him in patience. Now there was once again joy in Israel as David is anointed king over Israel. They are divided no more. Now things can begin to be set right. That's when David wrote those words. Oh, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like oil upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and down to the skirts of his garment. It's like the dew of Hermon. That's when he wrote these words. He's, he's reveling, reveling in the beauty of people living in unity. It's so difficult. Our country went through a horrible time of civil war, but somehow by the grace of God and through the love of Christ, our country was united again. Not because all the people were paid for all of their evil, but because there were those who could forgive. 
The joy of feasting gives way to the courage to retake the Ark of the Covenant because when the people are divided, they're easily defeated, right? A house divided against itself will not stand. And now that they were united together, David said, my joy is about right here because I know that the Ark of God is not in the temple. It is not in the tabernacle it was, I mean, at that time. It was not there. Now there's no place for Aaron to go, that, 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 that our sins can be atoned for on the Day of Atonement, but we got to go get the ark. And by this time, the Philistines had said, we don't want any part of this ark. Get it out. Do you guys remember the story? God had sent these horrible, afflicting diseases on the private parts of the Philistines. It's a horrible, yucky, terrible story, but they're like, get it out. And they put it on a cart and they send it out. Get it out. And so they did. David's joy could only be complete though. It had been at the house of a man by the name of Obed-Edom and God had blessed him there. But it was time for it to come home and so they go get it. You might remember that they had a bad start when their joy got ahead of God's word and they foolishly tried to move the Ark of the Covenant on a cart like the Philistines had. You see, when Philistines are getting rid of the Ark, that's fine. But when the people of God are bringing it, that's not fine. You see, God had told them, when you move the ark, there's a certain way to move it. You're not to put your hand upon it. It's not just to be anybody that moves it, but it needs to be my set-apart priests, the Levites only. And they're not to touch it with their hands. They are to take these poles, and there are these rings on the sides of the ark, and they're to... Take the poles through the rings and then the Levites will put it on their shoulders and they will bear it and walk it back to Israel. That's how the ark was to be moved. And they didn't do it right. And so a young man died. Our joy that we express must be governed by the word of God. Amen. All of our good deeds must have their foundations in the pages of Holy Scriptures. So they opened the book and they learned that the ark must only be moved by the men of the tribe of Levi. Carried on their shoulders and they did. Now they were rejoicing rightly. Now they were in the magnificent procession of joy. God's holy ark was coming home to the holy of holies where it would be hidden behind a veil and used in the worship of God. Blood would be sprinkled on it on the day of atonement. God's very presence would descend upon them. As the high priest danced around in holy robes, bells on the fringe, jingling as God forgave Israel another time. This is what was going on on this day in the text, Jason. Isn't that amazing? This was a big day, was it not? You see, it wasn't just that David was king. That wasn't where his joy was. He knew that was going to happen, and he knew he was just a guy. But his joy was about that thing's We're going to be set right. It was a picture and a shadow of another day coming and another advent. A day when the power of God and the holy perfection of sonship would come for the true atoning of the sin. This time though once and for all. So if you'll stay with me for a few more minutes. I know recently I've been preaching longer. I'm going to preach a little while longer. Can you handle it? First Chronicles chapter 15. This is where the story picks up. David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark. 
And they pitched for it a tent. If you remember, the ark was living in a tent, basically, the tabernacle, until the time of the temple was being built. But it would not be built by him. It would be built by his son. David said, none should carry the ark but the Levites, for God has chosen them to carry the ark and to minister unto him forever. And David gathered all of Israel together to Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord to his place that he had prepared for it. And for several verses, uh, from 4 all the way to 12, there are the names of these people. Now, we, you know, when, you, when you read these names, you have to understand, Paul, what it must have been like to have your name on one of those lists. It's like, you know, when the ark came back, I was there. When, look at my name. You can read it right here. Andy Cusel. I opened the door. For the people of God when they carried the ark. I held a trumpet in my hand. When you read these, these names, don't forget that every one of them are looking. Is my name on the list? And so their list of names. Verse 12, and he said, the Levites, you are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel into the place that I have prepared for it because you did it not right at the first. Our Lord did make a breach on us, but we sought him. And now we're doing it in due order. And the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of Israel. So what did they do? They washed themselves. They cleaned themselves. They put on special clothing because they wanted everything to be their very best. Holy to the Lord, set apart these men were, and their clothes and everything was. And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God on their shoulders with the staves therein, and as Moses had commanded to the word of the Lord. Don't miss it. They moved it the way God had said to move it. They had joy, but they had joy in the proper order. So David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up their voices with joy. This is an amazing thing to me. That not only did God uh, want things done in, in, in a certain order, but that God was orchestrating joy. Do you know really to enjoy yourself, there takes a little bit of planning. I think it's fun that the kids are practicing dancing. It adds a whole lot to the joy, right? When you get together, if you have to think about every step you take, it's not really a joyful dance, right? But when you learn the steps of the dance and you can just dance, it's a joyful thing. We've gone from a culture that doesn't even know how to rejoice to one where we need to learn how to do it. And this is what was going on. They didn't just want people banging cymbals. They didn't just want people singing off key. As we will begin to read and as we will begin to learn that they did not just let anybody do this. They let people that were skillful to do this. That's what we want in our worship. We want people who are skilled in it, who take time, who work hard, who want things done right. It's not just, we live in a world today that says, oh, God just wants whatever you have. Don't worry about it. Offer whatever it is. And if he doesn't like it, then... You know, whatever. That's not the way it should be, folks. We should think about if we're going to play in the house of God or we're going to sing or we're going to offer something or we're going to come into the house of God. We should be saying that we want to bring to God something better than we bring to the mall or something better than we bring to grandma's house. We want to bring it to the house of God and bring our best.
So the Levites appointed this man named Heman, the son of Joel, and his brethren, and Asaph, the son of Barchelai, and the sons of Merai, their brethren, Ethan, and the sons of Cushiah. If you, if you guys want some names, there's some names here. Okay? If, you run, if someone you know, needs a K name, I don't even know if it's a, you know, obviously Cushiah. Wow, what a name. And with them, their brethren of the second degree, Zechariah, Ben, and Jezeel, and Shemiramoth, and Jehe, and all these guys. And, they, and it names every one of the porters. Isn't this amazing? God names all of the people who just carried stuff. Because there was the ark, and then there was, they were going to set it up, and they were going to make it beautiful. It would be like, if we, if we had to take this on the road, there would be somebody, come on up here. There would be someone say, all right, you're going to be a porter. Could you carry this bed? All right, else it's going to be great. Uh, um, could, you, could you carry this? We're going to need songbooks when we sing in the house of the Lord, and we're going to need you to carry that, you know. And someone goes, oh, you know, we're going to want it to be pretty, you know. So, come on, I need somebody else to, come on, Gideon, come on up here. And we're, you're going to carry this, you know. Guys, what they were doing, these were the porters. And you might go, well, that's not important. They weren't the one who sang the solo. They weren't the one that played the incredible thing. It didn't matter. Their names were mentioned and their work was important because until if the bell wasn't there, the bell couldn't be rung. And if the tree wasn't there, if the decoration wasn't there, it wasn't beautiful. The pomp and the circumstance and the decoration and and the singing and the books, it's all important. What we want, though, is we want to be the soloist. And God says, in the kingdom of God, everybody plays a part, but not everybody plays the part of the soloist. That's why they're called a solo. You can be seated. God names the porters. That might have been my job. I might have got to carry something. And then the singers. Verse 19. So the singers, him and Asaph and Ethan, were appointed to sound with the cymbals of brass. It wasn't just everybody bring a cymbal. It was, there were certain people. There are certain people that have rhythm or certain people that know how to work the cymbals. And we want those people. Verse 19. Verse 20, and Zechariah, and it names again all these names. And it says, and these people were for the harps because they excelled. If you read through this, you'll miss this. If you're, if you're just kind of seeing the whole scene and you're missing that God appoints people who work hard to do things lovely. People that work hard to practice People that learn hard, uh, work hard to make things lovely and beautiful. I love it when Sarah's not here so I can brag on, brag on her. But uh, when she plays that harp, isn't it beautiful? You know? When so many people play the piano, it's such a lovely thing when, when they hit the proper notes. Isn't it lovely when they hit the proper notes? Sunday in, in worship is not a time to practice something. It's a time to bring your best and to play it. That's why, uh, you know, Brother Andy is taking the time with Bill Puckett to, to work with the musicians. Folks, we want beauty and excellence. We want the joy of our worship to not be like, oh, okay, you know, like one of the songs we sang earlier. We, we shouldn't do that. This, Sunday is not a day to practice a song we can't sing. 
Can someone remind us not to sing that song? Or, for, or, or to make me practice it so that we can? Because I can't sing it and I'm the song leader. Harps, excellence. Verse 22. And Shania, chief of the Levites, for a song, for he was... For he instructed about the song because he was skillful. He was teaching the songs. It takes a skilled person to be able to put together a choral arrangement. To be able to say tenors sing this and sopranos sing this. And this is the part where the basses come in. He would give instructions about the song. They were going to learn the song and sing the song and sing it with excellence. And they were going to be particular about it. Verse 23, then there were doorkeepers. I mean, seriously? And they're naming the doorkeepers. Guys, every word of God is put in there for you and for me. Why? Because there's a whole lot more doorkeepers and and porters and people that carry things than there are those that do excellent hard work. When they end up building the temple later, they don't just say anybody with a trowel, come on. They go, we want the guys who can carve the best. We want the people who can build the, with the most perfect lines. Why? Because we're offering God our best. Folks, what we do in the church of God is not just whatever we come and throw together for God. Because I'm the kind of person, I could come and I could write down four lines on a page and I could stand here for a half hour and I could yell and preach at you and you probably would like it. But the amount of hours I put into studying and to making sure and to being precise, every word. I looked up what porters meant in the Hebrew. Why? For you. Because I wanted to know what it meant. I wanted to understand it if I'm going to read it. I want to tell you what it means the right way. It takes time to do that. Hours upon hours. And I work hours on hours in this. And I deliver it for 35, 40, well, hours sometimes. Why? Because it's... I want it to be good enough for the house of God. I want to represent God. I don't just want to. I used to talk off the cuff a whole lot more than I do. Why? Why am I doing it excellent? I write down all the words to my sermons and think about them and wonder if I'm doing them right. Why do I put forth that much effort? Because that's what you should do. You should give it to God. That's why I ask the men to take the time to write their prayers. Not because I'm trying to work you hard because I want you to take the time to think about what you're going to say as they moved in verse 25 they moved the ark to Jerusalem David said to the elders of Israel the captains over thousands they went to bring the ark of the covenant up of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom and they did it with joy you can do things with joy and wear the right clothes and you can do them with joy and play on key and you can do with joy and work hard and write down the words to your sermons too And it came to pass when God helped the Levites that bear the Ark of the Covenant that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen. Everybody say fine linen. People that talk to us and and they tell us the story and they say that David didn't have any clothes on. they're, they're, They're sadly mistaken. David didn't wear the giant robe of a king which he would normally have worn in a procession like this have you ever seen them they wear the crowns and the giant robes and all the pageantry but what david did is david got the fine linen clothes of the priests and he said i'm not going to be hampered and encumbered by the heavy robes of the kingly robes i'm going to be a worshiper today 
and he threw off the, the robe just like he would not wear the armor of Saul when he went into battle with Goliath. He throws off the robes which he could rightly wear. He could walk in with pride and he could see a giant train and, and, a, and a robe and a crown and he could have done that. But if he had done that, his crown would have fallen off when he started dancing. His robe would have gotten away when he was twirling and when he was spinning and dancing for the Lord because that's what he was doing. But he wasn't unclothed. He was just dressed like the priests. He wore a fine linen robe. And all the Levites that bear the ark and the singers and the master of the songs, David also had on an ephod made of linen. He had this, so someone had to make it. They didn't have an ephod of linen. The ephod that they wore was this uh, bulky deal that had these stones. Have you guys ever heard it described? It's a major piece of, you know, incredible jeweled artwork. But here we have, he's wearing now a linen, an ephod. So, Andy, there was all this preparation. Can you see it? All of this just to move the ark. What they do? All right, we got to get seamstresses out, and we got to get people that, that can design this thing, and we got to make it look good, and we're gonna—it's got to be able to function, and we're gonna bring. And all of this was important. And sometimes I think we miss it all—all all the work that goes into the joy that they're experiencing on this day, and that was part of the work. One day, by the grace of God, I pray that we have uh, our own cathedral, our own church. And I want it to be beautiful. And I want this place to be beautiful too. But if we get the chance to make our own, if somehow one of you backslides and plays the lottery and wins the $200 million Powerball, we're going to have a great building. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be beautiful. If Jonathan was here, I'd tell him to edit that part out if anybody's ever listened. I don't know if anybody ever listened to anything that we put online anyway, but if they ever do, edit that part out. Their clothing was fine. It was excellent, delicate. David, the king of Israel, joined with the priest because as a king he could. He was God's anointed. The same story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 6, 7. You know, but you can read about it in 6.14. David danced before the Lord with all of his might and he was girded with the linen ephod. So does anybody want to see what I think that might have looked like? I don't know. I, I don't even know how to dance. Like, I'd probably fall on the ground. But I'm telling you, David was dancing. David was spinning. David was glorifying God in, in such a way that it really was kind of bothering people. I don't really think he should be behaving like that. You see, part of the reason Israel wanted a king is they wanted to be like the other nation. They liked the idea... That they would have these stately, important, bejeweled, berobed, super wealthy kings. Right? Right now in America, they hate Donald Trump because he, he doesn't act like they think he should act. Imagine this. David doesn't have on the king's robe. And he's out in front of the ark. And he's dancing and he's spinning and he's swirling and he's jumping and he's singing. And they're going, okay. That's what a court jester does. That's not what a king does. And he's like, God is good. And I'm excited at what God's doing. It's such a blessing. And it's amazing. 
and I'm so excited. And he's dancing, and they're just going. People, there are people there that are cringing. They're like, like you are right now. You're like, what's going on there? This is not a Broadway musical. It's church. But that's what he was doing. It says he danced with all of his might. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Glory to God in the highest. Hallelujah. And they were yelling and, and they were doing it loud. Loud. You cannot play a trumpet very easily, softly. And you can't shout quietly either. Glory. That's not a shout. That's just a glory. Right? And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David and Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, so she despised him. What does that mean? Oh, how embarrassing. Now, I know what this is like because I do this to my wife all the time, okay? She's not here, so she's not here to embarrass her, but I get a little bit crazy. And she says, you are a dignified man. You are a pastor. You're... You can't do that. This is what my wife, she does to me. Now, I'm not dancing before the ark, and she's probably right. I shouldn't do what I do. But I see that look on her face, that face like, like, really? So the man of God is going to do that? And, I, and, and yes, I do. And I maybe need to repent for half the things I do. But I will tell you this. David did not need to repent of this. And we know he didn't need to repent of it. In fact... It was quite the opposite. Those that looked on him and thought he wasn't dignified and thought what he was doing was over the top, God deals harshly with them. Who was he leaping and dancing before? Everybody say the Lord. This was not a dignified thing, she thought. God and David, though, would instruct Michael better and she would be judged for judging her husband. I'm going to say this, and I want you to hear me because it's true. None of us is to ever judge what other people offer God. When someone offers God their gift of love, and they are, it is not up to us to look at them and say, what are they doing that for? That's goofy. That's silly. There are people that offer God things and pour out their lives to God in a way, and that is not up to us to look down upon. Amen? Don't ever do it. Never. They brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place. And in the midst of the tabernacle, David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He dealt among the people, even among the multitude of Israel, as well as the women and men to everyone. And they offered them bread and a good piece of flesh and wine. And they said, everyone go to your home and let there be feasting in all of Israel tonight. And they went and it was an enjoyable, joyful time. But then David returned to his house and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself in the eyes of the handmaidens as one of those vain people shamelessly uncovers himself. Now why did you read it like that? Because that's how she said it. I wasn't there, but I guarantee you that's how she said it. I guarantee you she, she even turned her head like this. 
Oh, how glorious the king of Israel was today. Come on, Steve. You know this is exactly what she did. You've seen it. Your wife's done it to you, right? Not like this, of course. Your wife's a good woman. But this woman, she despised what David had offered the Lord. And she didn't like the fact that he had become so undignified. David lays it out, straightens it out. He said, you know what, Michael? It was before the Lord which chose me before your father and before all of his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord. It was before him I danced. That kind of sets it straight. He knew who he was, even if his wife had forgotten You see, the fullness of joy comes from remembering where God has brought you from and what he has done for you and not being ashamed of it or pretending it didn't happen. I've seen this here. There are people here who God brings out of a lot of things. And what happens is is we get so dignified that we don't want anyone to remember the sinners that we were when he found us. We don't want anyone to remember how lowly and how ignorant and how whatever we were. You see, real joy is like childlike. You know what? I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. Right? Like the man who was the slave owner in Amazing Grace, what a worm I was, right? Like the one hymn, and can it be that I should, right? Like how the song is sweet and awful. Oh Lord, why am I, why was I a guest? You see, when we forget where God brought us from and who we were, when He came and He touched us with His anointing, then we can't really have real joy. You can only have joy when you remember it and you go, oh yeah, I remember. Remember it, Steve. Remember. And I love what he says in verse 22. I'm winding up for those of you that are worried I've gone too far. He said, I'm going to be yet more vile. I love this. I love this line. If you think that I danced and if you think I was shameful and you didn't like how I behaved, I'm going to really embarrass you, woman. I will be more vile than this and I will be base in my own sight. And the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, when I do it, they are going to honor me in my basis. What does it sound like to you, Andy? Does it sound like he really cared what she thought or that he cared what God thought? You see, sometimes it's not a matter of, I don't care what they think. A minute, there's a lot of us that have that. There's a lot of us that's got that attitude that straightens your jacket and your head goes around like this. Well, I don't know if they think they're better than me, okay? That's not what David's attitude was. His attitude was, you know what? I'm bad, but I'm going to get worse. And he said, and you know what? I'm going to do it because I love God so much that I could care so little about what anybody thinks because when I danced, it was for Him. And when I sang, it was for Him. And when I screamed and yelled and said, Glory to God in the highest! And when I yelled that and people thought, Oh, He shouldn't do that. He's dignified. He said, I'm going to yell louder until my vocal cords explode if necessary. It wasn't that He didn't care what people... It's that He did care who he was singing to that's what made him a man after God's own heart 
Therefore Michael the daughter of Saul had no child till the day of her death. Everybody say joy gives it all. See that's what joy does. Joy doesn't hold anything back in pride. Joy is not concerned with being dignified or being well respected. Joy leaves nothing on the table. Joy teaches us to be all in in our love for God. All of our, how are we supposed to love Him, Luke? With all our heart and all our soul and with all of our mind. And joy is that way that God teaches us to be all in. I know what that feels like. It feels good. It feels good to say, yeah, I know I'm just what I am. But all that I am is for him. Like the apostle Paul said, he said, yeah, you know, I know it's hard to respect me. I know I got dirty hands. I know that I've been in jail and I know I don't have a lot of money. And I, he said, but I'll tell you what. He said, I might even be crazy. He said, but if I'm crazy, then I'm crazy for God. He said, everything that is me is for him. It's okay. We can love that. We can love crazy as long as it's crazy for God. Joy gives it all, leaves nothing on the table. Joy teaches us the all and love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. David gave it all. Restraint with God. Pride holding back due to what others think is barren. It's not really a full joy. You see, God smote Michael with barrenness. And he, but what did he do with David? He perpetuated the house of David all the way to Christ. Because the kind of joy that he wanted to show was a real kind of joy. Was a joy that gives all. Amen? Hold nothing back from God. Don't worry about what others think as much as you worry about what God thinks. Give it all. That's my admonition to us today. If you want joy, just give it all. Give it all. Let's pray. Lord, you love us and you have loved us with an everlasting love. How can we not have joy when your mercies are new every morning? Lord, we have heaven that you have prepared a place for us as David prepared a place for the ark. And one day we'll come home. One day we will be returned to the holy city as the ark was. And there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be feasting and joy and there'll be nothing to hold back on that day. Oh, what a day it will be. What a day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, 
and it's a pleasure to serve you.